0: Welcome to part two of Dr. Helena Darwin's Me Too PhD series. If you haven't listened to part one yet, we really do recommend that you listen to that before you start listening to part two because we go right into where we left off. We do want to provide a content warning. This episode contains discussions around sexual abuse and grooming. And because of these heavy topics, we've included resources on our website, so do see the link in our podcast description. Our Ivory Tower Boiler Room team consists of sexual abuse survivors and intimate partner survivors. So because of that, you'll hear right after part two of Dr. Darwin's interview, the follow-up and conclusion of the Ivory Tower Boiler Rooms Roundtable, discussing and reacting to having listened to all of Dr. Darwin's interview as a team live. So we discuss the intricacies and our own reactions as a trauma-informed team. So please do connect with us You can connect with us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. You can connect with us on Facebook at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. It is a private group, but we will grant you permission so you can be part of our team. And you can always email us at IvoryTowerBoilerRoom at gmail.com. And you can follow Dr. Darwin at, um, at Halana Darwin on Twitter. Thank you all. And here is Dr. Darwin's Me Too PhD series, part two. Yeah, and these, I mean, just this multiple layer you're speaking of, of exploitation and predatory behavior, like isn't one, like it was this abuser, but it's also the discipline, the university, like even when you've explained um, before about like you going back to the university, that physical return is a site of Oh Yeah,
1: okay, I think that was before we started recording.
0: Yeah. So If you wanna explain that.
1: Yeah, um, so I abandoned my office. I, I left a poster I felt pretty sentimental about. It was my first conference I ever attended. It was a poster presentation and um, I had it on the wall of my office to remind me of the beginning of my graduate school journey. Um, I really like that poster, but I left it. <laughs> I left all of my teapots and French press and cups and God knows what else, probably a lot of things because I cannot stomach the thought of walking into that building again. Uh, I mean, I, it, it's the site of my trauma. It's not just because of him and my memories of him there, it's because of all the hostile cold looks I got from all the faculty for so many years who treated me so terribly because I wasn't able to perform happiness for them and instead felt my feelings that they were all culpable and complicit in me feeling, but uh, it was unpleasant for them. And so they punished me for it for many, many years. And I just can't go back there. It would make me throw up. So I'm not going to do my big cap and gown commencement. I am not going to get any of those um, cherries on top at the end of this whole traumatic, terrible journey, because it's just not worth it for me and my mental health. I have to stay away from there. I don't even like looking at my diplomas like I have them all in front of this computer and it just makes me angry. It was such a waste. Not a waste for sociology, they benefited from my scholarship, but in terms of like what it's done for my life, I I don't have a job. I'm unemployed. I have a trashed reputation. I delayed my lifelong earnings by a total of 10 years in graduate school for no reason. And I have CPTSD as a result of going many, many years being totally dependent on someone who was abusing me. Uh, like thought I had Stockholm syndrome for a long time until I discovered the diagnostic criteria criteria for CPTSD. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's what I have.
0: Yeah. And I think since I'm still. <laughs> in the whirlwind of, so like I am not faced at all with what you were faced with, Helena. So I don't wanna write, I don't wanna do any kind of comparisons. Sure. Um, but like, even when I tried to bring up what's happened to Michael Kimmel and just like that this was something that has been reported on and we'll put the links of like, any time it's been reported, which, you know, it does look like there's not a lot of follow-ups um, there's been a lot of silence now around, um, like, why he left, um, mm-hmm. which was because of the Title Nine investigation, and then eventually, like you said, he decided he'll retire before, I'm assuming it got to a point, yeah, mm-hmm. um, before it got to the point where everything would be aired and solely his reputation, um, while he's still cashing, was cashing out during those years. Again, unfortunately-
1: I let let that man collect three semesters of his bloated salary by not reporting sooner. and Like, honestly, he should give me that money for my therapy costs for the rest of my life since he only got it because I I stayed quiet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a type of trauma reparation. (laughs) Um, And well, And I think for our listeners to know like if they don't know who he is but just even like the people he brought to Stony Brook like I I always think about well how about the high profile I forget what that committee was called but I'm sure you know like where Jane Fondo was on this Mm -hmm. board this whole board he created Mm -hmm. Um, and I wonder well where are they in terms of being aligned with him like have they spoken out
1: Um, no, I tried to reach out to Naomi Wolf to tell her that this had been going on when she was there um, and that she should distance herself from him and that I'm sorry I wasn't able to tell her when she was one of my track paper readers. And I got an automated response from her, um, what's it called, Uh, agent saying that she didn't want to engage.
0: Wow.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So I haven't bothered reaching out to Gloria Steinem, that's for sure, who he wrote an op-ed with about sexual consent while sexually abusing me. It was that same time period. Um, Yeah, no, I mean- I'm so disillusioned with institutional feminism at this point because of the nature of who I was working with in this traumatic experience. They were all feminists and they were all complicit and they all threw me under the bus and have punished me again and again and again for being too angry, for expressing myself in the wrong
0: tone. Well, to call you angry is the ultimate gaslighting
1: Oh, for sure, no, I mean, I've been tone policed like crazy throughout this whole experience by feminists.
0: Yeah, and it's, I'm glad you brought up um, Karen Kelsky's work who we know through our podcast, like we'll talk back and forth on Twitter. And when she came out with that academia as a cult, like you're getting to the root of some of these, the toxic behavior, how it can manifest and how you're supposed to expect a narrative that you definitely know is not what you're faced with in front of you. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, are you going to buy this topsy-turvy universe they're trying to show you?
1: And Uh, I I do want to say, since I've made such a point of how many people have not been helpful that Karen has been lovely. That's Karen cool. has amplified anything I asked her to amplify. Um, she actually knew before I went public, I had told her. And um, yeah, she she's the real deal. I'm a big fan of hers.
0: Yeah, no, she really is. And very, there, are very, yeah. there
1: are very few people I can say that about at this point. Yeah,
0: yeah, and again,
1: um also the twitter group phd voice was the only platform that offered um to invite me to write a blog after i came out on twitter about all this they were the only organization that reached out to me besides you guys of course um to be like hey do you want to talk about this some more so i'm a big fan of them and everyone should follow them on twitter because they
0: they um they help us too, they're incredible. Well, it's interesting though, how we're all, it's all becoming its own support group in a way, like mm-hmm. figuring, and again, I'm sure Karen, when we'll have her on eventually, which we will. Um, and she's been treated terribly. Oh, that's what but I was, you know, you just, she, she is bullied yeah.
1: mercilessly yeah. Yeah. for speaking out against out. the cult because she's that's gets- how it. cults operate.
0: But yeah, she's gaslit right. gets- all the time. Like I see fellow PhD students who trash talk her and I tell them she speaks out about
1: like, sorry you don't want to hear these harsh truths but yeah. they are realities
0: yeah but this is what's going there, on
3: there's also a there's also a self-preservational yeah aspect to it which is as you're saying if she's the one who's actually going to be there for you when shit gets real maybe don't
0: trash talk her
3: and destroy your it's destroy your insurance policy in effect.
0: Right. Well, the thing is she would still be like, cause I've seen how much she amplifies PhD voices that. Yeah, but the extent to which do, she like, can
3: amplify well, a, a vo- another person's voice is dependent on people being on people. Well, I, I see I, what
0: you're getting at. Like if they call her out, will she be there for them when they need her? But right. my answer be yes. No, no, I, no,
3: she'll, she'll oh, wow. she, maybe she'll be there, but don't call out the person who is actually there for you. Yeah,
1: don't torch,
0: torch your safety net. Wait, say it again, Kalana.
1: <laughs> don't torch your safety net.
0: Exactly. Yeah, sure.
1: Exactly. Thank he you has for, created a really great resource on Facebook called The Professor is Out. Oh, yes. For people who are trying to find jobs outside the academy. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is a lot less organized and structured than the work she does under Professors In. It's more just like a community of people posting. But you see a lot of stories of people who are walking away, even though they got tenure, and like what their final straw was, or um, people who are tired of the emotional and financial abuse of adjuncting or whatever, but also people giving each other tips mm-hmm. on like other career paths to follow. So anybody who is um, trying to figure out an exit from the cult that has made you entirely dependent on them and feel like you can't possibly leave because you're nobody without them. Um, the professor is out, create, uh, provides like a re- pretty healing space for us all to help each other figure this out.
0: Yeah, no, we'll link that in. Thank you, Halana. And I was there just going to say, like, I'll see those try to call Karen a drifter, but in the way, it's the same way they tried to gaslight you, Halana, was saying, tone policing you. It's the same behavior. Like, I've right. I've been reined in, I've told Adam this in confidence, and I'll say it here. I've been told that I'm really assertive, that, um, I'm not following um, that. I'm putting my queer voice into my research, and I really might not be marketing myself correctly. And now I just realize that that's homophobia.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I'm like, why that's am terrible. I trying to? Why am I trying to do these backflips of excusing behavior that's just not acceptable? Right. The, the
3: thing that comes to my mind as I mean, my my sort of issue, and, and the reason why I just barely finished my PhD, and am not excited to uh, to go on in the in the industry, is that um, is precisely this issue that you have to you have to be a certain way, like you have to you have to carry on no matter what. And that's true for somebody who, who has, I mean, I've, I've shared on this space before about like what I'll call neuro atypicality um, issues like um, ADHD and depression and stuff like that. Just like things that that I think make, give me a lot of insight but also make it so that my ability to share those insights is not in the same mold as other people's ability to share those insights. And it's just, uh, writing writing a, an article in the traditional mode is literal torture for me. And so I made the decision fairly recently to stop doing that, um, but I mean it's i i i think i think that my experience also speaks to your um what what you were talking about that that having these kinds of conversations with people is not pleasant right it's not it's not fun for anybody to be an ally in the moment Mm -hmm. you may get a sense of pride and satisfaction and inner strength and whatever from it but like it's not It's not
1: amusing. Well, you have to ask yourself, what does it mean to be an ally? Yeah.
3: So right. throughout exactly. the years
1: of me being so terrified of the mandatory reporting stuff, I, um, I felt like I was going to explode. I needed people to know what I was going through so that I went, wouldn't be so alone in it. And so one by one, I did tell trusted friends, including Andrew, mm-hmm. um, and like brought them into an inner circle with me. So mm-hmm. that I would have people to like witness what was going on and also to talk to if I needed to or to cry to if I needed to. Um, and, th- you know, that was always very hit or miss because it was also a really big ask of people to be quiet with me because I wasn't reporting him and mm-hmm. it wasn't in my best interest for them to report him on my behalf. And in order to be an ally to me, they had to keep quiet too. Um, And one person felt, well, a few, one person for sure uh, felt really victimized by me telling her. And it was because she was also there to work with him and she was a sexual assault survivor. And knowing that about him meant that she couldn't work with him and she was really upset that I had done that to her, Um, which I had mixed feelings about, obviously. But I also see the truth and what her experience in that moment was, and that maybe was selfish of me to tell her. Maybe I didn't need her to be in that inner
3: circle with me. Um, But you're also you're also not expected to make right magnificently rational decisions in a matter like this. You're allowed to make mistakes. Right. Uh, You're allowed to do what you think you is right at the time and then decide that later that it was a mistake
1: But those friends who held that space with me I don't think I would have graduated without that if I had actually not told anyone I would have dropped out there's no way I would have been able to be in that space because everyone hated me I was so vilified so vilified and I mean, some of it was warranted. I really did act erratic. I was in trauma. I was not a pleasant person to be around. And without an explanation, of course, people didn't want to associate with me, but I couldn't afford to give that explanation to too many people. So like I had my my safe spaces. I had my couple of people in most of my classes um, and, That was really all I needed to like, you know, just have a few people know that, like, that there was a reason and that I wasn't actually some crazy person. Well, I mean, I was, I was a little crazy, like my mental health was deeply unraveling. And I did finally go on antidepressants at the last conference I went to when I <clears throat> basically had a mental breakdown and considered throwing myself in front of a car. Nice. And it was while I was pushing my baby stroller, actually. I was like, I, I wasn't going to bring the stroller into the street with me, obviously. But, and I wasn't really going to do it. I don't think it was just like, the most concrete suicidal ideation i had ever had. And it scared the shit out of me, especially since it was while I was pushing a baby stroller. Um, But I just hated myself so deeply. I hated being me. I didn't see a way out. I couldn't figure out how to stop being me. I felt totally out of control of my emotions. I felt so angry all the time. And I knew I was fucking up in my networking with people at that conference because I couldn't just get a fucking handle of my emotions and chill and just like be pleasant to be around and was being a bitch during Q and A's to people and just like really making a mess of things drinking way too much at the receptions and realized like, oh, if I'm at a point where I feel so, um, so hopeless and and despairing so much about being stuck in me being me then it's finally time to go on meds Mm. i had put off going on meds because i was so scared of it changing me and of losing who i was and um not knowing what it would be like to have my brain chemistry altered and just like really, really, really scared that it would be in a way like committing suicide, that it would be killing a part of who I was. But here I was literally considering suicide. And I'm like, okay, well then I have nothing to lose. At this point, it's time to go on meds because that's my way out. And I'm so glad I did that. I'm so glad, I just, it's the best decision I've ever made in my life. And it was like five months before the pandemic started. So I thankfully went into the pandemic with my brain chemistry already, like more normal and under control and not as prone to depression and anxiety. Uh, So that was good because having all this time to ruminate would have been very debilitating if my anxiety was spiraling without some medical intervention.
3: Shit. I I want, I want to speak to that for a moment, which is that I've had the same fear that like, if I, if I go into therapy or if I take meds, it's, it really is like, it's a natural response to feeling out of control that like, at least I know that there's this like sense of self at the center of this, that I, that I know who that is
4: Mm
3: -hmm. everything else is a maelstrom, Mm. but this part of me is constant. And thankfully, I don't think that's true anymore. Um, What what I've realized is that I barely recognize myself from a few years ago. I barely recognize myself from college, right? There are so many behaviors, great and small, that are so different and i'm not currently on any sort of psychiatric prescriptions so and so what i'm talking about is just the natural drift of a person from childhood to adulthood right and the the only advice I can give to other people who are in fear of changing themselves by changing their habits or in fear of changing themselves by going on some sort of psychopharmaceutical is embrace it mm-hmm. because who you are, you, 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 don't, you don't get to say who you are mm-hmm. any more than you get to say who anybody else is. I wish, I wish it were, I wish it were something that you could control, but it's, it's just not. What you can do is accept yourself for who you are.
1: Well, and so for me, I felt that um, too much of who I was, was being defined by anxiety. Yeah. And that if that was the cornerstone of my personality, the central deciding factor and who wanted to be friends with me and who didn't driving everything in my life. If I was waking up in fear of drinking too much coffee, less my anxiety spiral and tank my day. Like if my anxiety really was getting that big and out of control and taking over my entire life, I wonder who I'm gonna be if it's under control. Like, wow, what? And so when I started meds, I'm on Lexapro. Well, the generic Um the, the first thing that I noticed was that my brain was still. Like I went for a, a 10 minute walk and didn't have a single thought. And was like, whoa, wait a minute. That means like all the thoughts that were constantly worrying in my head were all anxiety driven. It was just ruminating all the time. And with the anxiety under control, I have the opportunity to like rebuild who I am. What do I think about when I'm walking through the woods? Like, what do I want to think about? Do I want to think, or would I prefer mindfulness and like a Zen meditation type of moment and like embracing the stillness? And um, I mean, I was like riding a high for a few months when I started meds because it was just such a stark contrast to how, existing in my brain had been and it just was phenomenal and of course over time it's become more normalized and of course some anxiety still exists and I have thoughts (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but to realize like how much anxiety really had come to dominate everything about me Uh, and my life and my interactions and my potential in life, structurally, institutionally, professionally was pretty mind-blowing.
0: I'm so glad we're talking about this because it almost puts me on the verge of tears in a good way because I don't have those running thoughts that I used to have a few months ago. Like for me, I reached this point where I actually had a suicidal ideation in February and just felt all of this understanding how much the trauma from my experience was affecting me. And I had just kept trying to push the suitcase down. Like, no, I'll put more clothes in it. It'll be okay. It's going to be okay. And then realizing why am I so upset with myself? Like, why do I not want to continue being? Mm -hmm. And that scared me so much um, that it was then that I reached out for a therapist and through the therapist realizing like I've been working on my anxiety and not, I always say this to other survivors. It's not like I've gone back to what it was like before the experience to that Andrew, but it's definitely an Andrew that I'm really excited exists, who's energized and who, I found my voice again. And I realized I was losing my voice. Um, So, whew. yeah Yeah,
1: thanks for sharing that Um, it's really scary and it's also important to understand when talking about suicidal ideation that um there's a difference between passive suicidal ideation and active suicidal ideation so passive suicidal ideation is when you have moments of feeling like you wouldn't mind not existing anymore Like, maybe it wouldn't be the end of the world if I got diagnosed with a terminal illness and died. Like, maybe that wouldn't be so bad.
3: Or, you know,
1: just like not being particularly invested in living, Mm
0: -hmm. like not
1: really having that survival impulse. That's passive suicidal ideation. It's very different than like creating a plan. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think, a lot more people have moments of passive suicidal ideation than we talk about in part because they're not even sure if it counts as suicidal ideation because it doesn't match the definition we often use which is actually just active suicidal ideation. So um, yeah, just wanted to clarify yeah, that. Also. So
0: important. And why, you know, we can, we're wrapping up now, but I will always thank you Halana for being someone in the seminars because Halana and I were in one seminar, maybe two. I'm trying to remember, but definitely one seminar. I remember really vividly because we would sit near each other and immediately I saw the authenticity of your voice. And that I remember we spoke up about, Jewish families or something about mm-hmm. being culturally Jewish. And I remember there was some pushback in that seminar and just knowing that there was like an ally to talk to about that meant a lot Helena, and also that I didn't have to try to hide parts of myself. Um, yeah. So I've looked at you a lot as an anchor and I hope that that doesn't feel like a strong weight but yeah. like even when you came forward like you've acted in a way as a mentor to me with opening up about trauma. So for that, I thank you a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not a positive vibes only type of person, like come as you are. (laughs) I'd much rather you come as you are than come as some weird sanitized artificial version of yourself. That's boring. Uh, But also I just wanna say in terms of like, figuring out who you are after sexual trauma, um what you were talking about andrew i have been having the time of my life on instagram and i just want to talk about this for a second Yeah, please <laughs> so being a pretty girl in the academy is a stigma it discredits you academically it makes it less likely that people will look at you as a viable hire as a professor uh People, people take you less seriously. And if you are a pretty girl in the academy, the only way to make sure that doesn't hurt your career is to at least act like you don't know it. And or like do whatever you can to tone it down, to not flaunt it, whatever, because you, know, you should at least be oblivious to it in order to like not have that kind of stigma and discrediting whatever. And then to have the additional layer of um, people whispering or even knowing that something sexual happened with a professor and to have the like constant looming threat of victim blaming and slut shaming there as well. I have been so separated from like any sort of celebrating my beauty, enjoying being sexy, any of that for such a long time. And I finally like came up for air, graduated, realized I need to figure out a whole different career path anyway, that like this whole chapter is over and realized, oh shit, I'm already 34. Academia just took the best, sexiest, like cute girl on the internet years from me. And I only have a few years left to really enjoy this before it's going to become socially awkward because I've aged out. So I am just having so much fun in terms of my healing journey being like, yes, queen, I am a sexy bitch and posting thirst traps and like just having so much fun doing it. And part of it is a fuck you to all the incel men in sociology who love to trash talk me on their little website where they obsess over me and like my husband and all sorts of weird shit. And like including including rape threats about me. Like, okay, you know what? I'm sorry you all think I'm hot and don't know what to do with it. That's your problem. I'm not gonna take that on me. I'm gonna be over here like dancing around in skimpy clothes, enjoying being sexy because I get to do that. It's my body, it's my sexuality. Michael Kimmel doesn't get to take that from me. These asshole men in sociology don't get to take that from me. Even the occasional disrespectful person in my DMs. Most of them are respectful, I'll have you know. But (laughs) even the occasional disrespectful person doesn't get to take that from me. I get to enjoy my skin.
0: Yeah. And I'm so, so thankful that you share that with the Instagram community.
1: <laughs> I'm Inst- under feral housewife PhD. Oh, Anyone wants to support my thirst trap journey. Yeah, <laughs> feral
0: housewife is <laughs> and, Well, I've been talking it up among these offline conversations, but soon my men's romper uh, set will arrive so I'm ready to I'm walking on yes the- oh yeah I'm embracing my you know gay sexuality yeah feel it- good about yourself but you only get one body exactly and I, I think it. a lot of that confidence I had about my looks and how I loved just being authentic, really did feel like it was taken from me. Yes. From the gaslighting that I had that night that I had received from this abuser. And now I'm like, wait, I'm in charge of my body and I'm in charge of how I want to feel confident. So I'm so glad you said that, Helena. And yeah, um, wow, there's a lot here. I know we're gonna return with you again when you have um, Redoing Gender.
1: Oh, um, yes. I'll, I'll come on to talk about my forthcoming book when it's actually more of a reality. Right now, I need to figure out how to get past my smooth brain from the pandemic. All, all the yes. nice little complex nooks and crannies that my brain have smoothed out from too much binge TV watching and <laughs> gin and tonics. Um, but eventually, <laughs> I will finish it and it'll feel like it's time to start promoting it. But it's about non-binary people. It's based on my virtual ethnography in um, symbolic interaction, doing gender beyond the binary, which has been cited a ton, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, but this is the follow-up to that virtual ethnography, which was my interview study that I did with 47 people. So this is the book based on those interviews about uh, the labor of non-binary gender outness and how that has really helped push our society towards a place of embracing gender diversity more.
0: Wonderful. Well, soon to come a book launch. Fabulous. As who knows, hopefully the podcast, will see. It'll be in its next chapter, but um, you're always welcome, Halana, to come back and
1: and if anybody is going through the type of experience that I went through, I am so sorry that there isn't an organized support group for us yet. I really, really, really want to make that happen. But for now, you are welcome to find me if you just need a friend. I'm not yeah, a licensed professional, you. I am not a therapist, but I am somebody who has lived through it and survived. Yeah. And somehow didn't even drop out and like got my PhD and it was hell and I don't wish it upon anybody but if you are in that space you can reach out to me I'm on Twitter I'm on Instagram I'm very easy to find I have a website everything is just my name well except Instagram where I'm feral housewife PhD but on Twitter it's just my name Helena Darwin the trick is you have to spell my name right <laughs> I'm not I'm not Helena mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm halana it's h-e-l-a-n-a and then darwin as in charles darwin who i am related to yeah. so just remember my name and you can find <laughs> me and i will be your friend
0: yeah well we'll include halana's links uh, yeah. in the episode so you can easily find it so thank you again halana and, and... We'll see you oh i think adam was going to say something but well go ahead I-
3: what, I will say that one of, the, one of the things that I do like about um, having, having you on the episode, having, uh, we, we actually did a, um, an, a, we recorded last week and our listeners will, will, will hear that soon. Um, a, uh, another person who, who flamed out of their, um, or is in the process of flaming out of their, um, their academic life. When people put that trust in you, that's a good feeling. I wanna, I wanna amend what I said earlier, right? Being there with a person and having the tough conversations can be exhausting. Not can be. If it's not exhausting, you're not doing it right, um, right? It, it, it's exhausting. It's sad. It's frustrating because obviously you're taking some of the other person's, but like the. When somebody trusts you with their story, that's a good feeling. That's that's how you know you're doing the right thing, and that's how you know you're an actual feminist instead of just playing one at conferences.
0: <laughs> there we go. Oh, I love On that. That, uh, there you go. I love that. Yeah, thank you thank all you. for listening.
3: <laughs> thank you for joining us. Oh yeah.
0: The Ivory Tower Boiler Room team would like to thank Dr. Halana Darwin for being so brave and courageous to share her sexual abuse narrative with our listeners and community. And for me, for Erica, for so many sexual abuse survivors, it's meant the world to feel that our voice has been amplified in this way. So thank you to Dr. Darwin And what follows next is part two of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room's trauma-informed discussion around listening to what all of you just listened to from Dr. Darwin's interview.
3: Well, you probably know the statistics better than most. In the outside world, sexual assault isn't investigated all that much either.
4: And neither is it reported because it's not Precisely. ever taken seriously enough Precisely. and the
2: victims are always blamed. And, and it's, tra- yeah. it's re-traumatizing to go through reporting as well. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the whole process is... is...
0: Yeah, I talked yeah. a lot about that in our mental health series that I didn't report because I was afraid of homophobic Long Island police officers and that they wouldn't take it seriously. And maybe I would have been proven wrong. They might've been really well-trained. I I don't know that. All I know is at the time, I already felt like a target.
4: When it comes to that though, sexual assault cases, I think it's less about how they're trained because I do think even if they were well-trained, the type of people that are being hired and going to police academies and becoming cops and becoming detectives, the majority of them i'm not saying all but a good majority of them have proven that it doesn't matter what their training is they're going to run their cases at how they feel it to be i mean we saw this with the brock turner case the judge mm-hmm. literally did not give a shit. he considered brock turner's life more valuable than chanel miller's
0: mm-hmm. and only
4: gave him the six months which he only served three months for yeah which in any other circumstance, had it been a Black person, I mean, I hate to bring race into it, but we all know that it is a factor.
3: Had it been
4: a more violent, sadistic scenario, would he have gotten more time? Maybe a little bit, but who knows? Like there are other factors that dictate how seriously they want to take it. But when it comes to the normal circumstances in which sexual abuse occurs they act like it's nothing
3: so what what i i mean i'm not glad that you brought up that case because it makes me vomit a little in my mouth but what what brock turner of course has in common with um with helana's case is that privilege protects the
0: mm -hmm. abuser
3: or the assaulter Right? And that's one of And that's factors. true in theft. That's true in matters of sexual. Sorry, Erica, go ahead.
2: I was going to say that's one of the factors that went into my choices about reporting. I mean, one of them. There were there were plenty of of factors that went into it, but the person who assaulted me had very very high up federal government connections. Mm-hmm. Um, not he, him, he he himself didn't work for the federal government, but his father did and I was a random college student in town and uh, you know and it's you know and it's so easy to get into victim I mean that's why when I tell my story. I explain what I was wearing uh, and... That I had not gone alone and that I had been there, oh, probably eight-ish hours, maybe more. And over the course of those eight hours, I think I had one and a half or two beers. So I was doing the things that, you know, I hate to say supposed to be, but the things they tell you. You're supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. you know. I was not putting myself in a position to be victimized, and yet I still have experienced that, you know, conversation where somebody is pointing out all the mistakes you made. Um, yeah. But I think that's
4: the problem, too, because it's never the victim's choice to have this horrific thing happen to them. It's the choice of the abuser to commit that horrible thing against the other person. So the fact I mean, I'm still always annoyed <laughs> that they even, you know, that victims like you and I have to literally go through the checklist of, oh, well, what is going to be said to me? What are they going to ask of me and how are they going to take? my answers as a reason for that to have happened to
0: you. Yeah, It's bullshit. And I also also want to say too, it doesn't matter what you wear. You should never get abused. It doesn't matter if you're wearing provocative clothing. Um, It also doesn't matter if you went by yourself. I went by myself. Did I want to get raped? Of course I didn't. Um, So, you know, as a male survivor, the difficulty is usually what I face is being on guard with the gendered expectations of men being seen as strong and never being able to be victimized. And where like women are trained that they could always be victimized, men are seen in this opposite light of how could you be abused? Because you are supposed to be this patriarchal protector, but it's like, well, how about if, you know, there is someone with an aggressive ego who wants to abuse you and you're subjected to their will. And, you know, the reason, yes, one of the reasons was the fear of homophobia, but another real reason was, similar to Halana, retribution. I mean, Halana discusses about professional retribution of, um, you know, targeting her career. Um, Mine was my abuser said he was going to actually kill me if I ever said anything. So, and he actually did like bring out a weapon. So yeah. I really was not that eager to report because I did think I was lucky enough to get out of there. Like I really thought that was my last night on the earth and it was that serious and scary. And, you know, and I don't bring that part up a lot because it's really, I think though, I mean, I've said to the group that there was That moment really changed the trajectory of where, I mean, I do wonder if I didn't go through that type of trauma, if I would have created this group with everyone in the sense of wanting to share these, knowing we needed these types of empowering communities. That's what I mean, not that like this wouldn't happen, but the way that traumas informed my living, that's what I mean. And. I know Eric and I talk about it a lot because it is, um, it just shaped the way I interact. And I think in a positive, from such a negative thing and a place of having been so close to the edge of an experience that I really thought I wasn't getting out of. It taught me about taking risks and knowing that my voice can't be silenced because I've already faced something so horrific that, you know, I need to give voice to others who've been traumatized. Um, Yeah. And it is, it's really, it's odd the optimism that I see in it now, if that makes sense. Well,
3: yeah. I yeah a response to that if you don't mind um, really quickly that something something that very much bothers me is when is when people um, people try to say that it's all for the best type of responses to somebody going through trauma you hear this a lot when somebody experiences a death in the family or in, in their chosen family right is people people don't know what to say right we as a we as a society definitely need training in a lot of uh, a lot of arenas and one of them is like how to, how to comfort somebody and how to like make, make meaning out of the horrible events that happen to us, whether predictable, like people in your life dying or unpredictable, like, like what we're talking about now. Um, and one thing I, what, one thing I do want to say is that like you, you don't have to make something out of your trauma. Right? You don't have to like use your trauma and, and do like trauma arts and crafts, right? How you, how you, how you respond to your trauma is, is your business and your business alone. And if you went through something like what Andrew went through and you didn't have this, this positive and constructive response to it, good for you. Keep, keep doing what you need to do because that's enough.
2: Yeah, I I think I, I, I hear you, Adam, and I, I hear what Andrew is saying, and I mean, and I know I've talked to Adam about this that I there's a very clear divide in in my head between before and after, um, even though after has existed for a lot longer than before it did at this point, um, but my whole life is a trauma-informed life. I mean, it's not that it, 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 and I mean, we've talked about this in particular because we've talked about some of my anxiety and stress about my own writing work and, you know, how I don't want to get stuck into writing the trauma narrative again again and again and again and again. I don't want that to be, you know, all of what I'm doing, and you know, and we keep seeing, you know, we seem to keep coming back to that as a as a, a influential factor in 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 that work. But um, but no, I mean, it it is not. It's it's a trauma informed life. It's not being able to sleep with the lights off still i mean not as many lights as there have been in the past but i still leave certain lights on it's how jumpy i get in you know certain kinds of places like Rooms that have only one way in and out. Um, I had a doctor's office. I was at a doctor's office where the consult room that I was in one day was an interior room. So it had no windows and it had one door in and out. Um, And I was really, really uncomfortable and I did not oh, it was just, it was really, really, really awful to be there just in that, like, in that room, knowing that there was one way to escape if I needed to. You know, it's it's how alert or not alert I might be when I'm alone outside and, Mm -hmm. you know, especially at night, things like that. I mean, All of these things are things like, especially the being alone outside at night thing, you know, it's something that you're sort of trained to be on alert for, but there are degrees of alertness. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably jumpier than a lot of people, than most people when it comes to that that whole experience.
0: Yeah. yeah minor doorways <laughs> very particular about where i sit like i don't like to sit with my back to a door yeah cuz i don't know who's going to come
2: i thought that me. was just me i thought that was just me i'm yeah,
0: uh... me. and i i like have this ritual at night where i make sure that the deadbolt's locked three times <laughs> but and like before i just thought it was an ocd behavior but then through my therapy, I've realized no, that's a trauma survivor, survival tactic. And it's also what I have about white noise. I really don't like being in the silent for too long. Unless I'm reading, that's okay. But I love that's why when I discovered podcasting, and I think that informed this informs my life, this kind of project of podcasting, because it comes from the trauma of wanting to connect with other voices. And, you know, so I guess that is, that's the trauma informed approach that I feel. And um, especially having, you know, two thirds of the team um, who have experienced Trauma. I mean, I think each of us have been touched by trauma or a mental health um, issue that we're working through. So, yeah. And I, I mean, I know we'll bring up more about the administration's Mm -hmm. response next time. I just want to say, like, everything Erica and Mary are saying is exactly. appropriate to voice, which is, yes, it's important we have these protocols in place, but the downside is what happens when it becomes so isolated to the university protocol that the outside world isn't involved. And I really feel like for me, maybe that's the future is we need some kind of mediation. We need some type of outside party to, be present where you know oh that's right this outside party is not going to report to my department right away so i don't have to feel anxious that i'm going to face um any type of backlash like i have what it really is is i know this was just for me and it still is is i really just need to know i'm part of a community and that university should have trauma healing circles and should really have support groups. I, I don't know of a support group at our university. I mean, I've, I was first placed within anxiety support group, but I even said to my therapist, this really won't work for me because my narrative is so specific that I need to know I'm around a safe community of LGBTQ survivors so eventually I did find a kind of group like that and it's been good that I know I can reach out to them but yeah I think if we could have more support groups please there I know the administration is listening support groups <laughs> and and
3: and like you were saying about centering Helena's narrative that's that's exactly what she said is that is that there needs to be individualized responses because she I mean, She kept being asked to speak out in ways that would jeopardize her career, but not necessarily jeopardize her professor's career. And there is no justice in that kind of system. And there is justice in the kind of system that you're alluding to with individualized groups and a sense of community and a sense that the people who are handling your case are handling your case. Yes. Anyway, I also again, just thank to- you, Helana. Yeah, for your suggestions as well as for your story. Sorry, Mary. Please.
0: Yes, thank you, Helana.
4: I also just wanted to point out really quickly. I'm sorry, I took some notes, but she described Helana described something very important and right in the beginning when she was talking about how this professor basically manipulated her beforehand. And I just want to point those out because they are very consistent with a lot of domestic violence and sexual assault cases. Uh, The first one she mentioned was love bombing, which for anyone who doesn't know what that means, it's essentially just showering one person with affection constantly to the point that it's literally nauseating. Um, The other thing um, to point out, friendship and offer emotional support in a time of need. Um, I know that doesn't sound like anything crazy but combined with the love bombing it's just another way for them to get under your skin so that way they can Mm -hmm. manipulate you as well as um, offering professional help for favors and also just having the financial support or leverage to hold over you Um, those are a lot of factors that do come into domestic violence and sexual assault cases. And I just think it's important for anyone going through anything like that to look out for those um, and really just trust your instincts on how you feel about this person. If you don't think this person is coming from having pure intentions like most professors should, they should want to help their students succeed because that is the point. Um, uh, but obviously in this case, he really just took advantage and found a way.
0: He groomed to her.
4: To, yeah, exactly.
0: And the grooming really relies, right? Like, I'm glad. Thank you, Mary, for, especially as, um, your own experience with, um, <clears throat> intimate partner violence that, um, it's that isolation of saying you're the only like right like you're saying it's a wonderful instructor should like and this is why those who are committed to their students this is not about you not being committed to your student and helping them no it's about there's a problem if you ever say i will pull leverage over you if you do not do this if you do a quid pro quo like michael kimmel did Mm -hmm. if you, Helena, don't do this. I will not invite you to this conference. That's a quid pro quo.
4: Or sure, I will mean, is- give you funding.
0: Exactly. And that kind of abuse is essential to someone who's grooming someone. Um, and makes them think that they're the only person they can ever rely on. Which further isolates them. Which is why I think if departments had not even departments, but if departments publicized, we have a robust support group, not reporting system. Mm-hmm. Yes, is reporting important? I think yes, a reporting system is important. However, you need to let the victims know and survivors. I mean, I know it depends. Some people don't like being caught a victim. So I wanna acknowledge that. Um, But like in that moment, if you've been victimized, here's your reporting system. So yes, administration, I'm glad you have a very robust reporting system, I am. However, what I don't see right now, and this is me coming to you as a sexual assault survivor, you do not have the follow-up. Where is my support? How do I know when I report that I will have the university's back, backing to join other survivors. That's my challenge to the administration to help address that. Because trust me, then, you know, you will have a community of care and that to me is a trauma-informed system. So on that, we will turn <laughs> Whew. Okay, it's a lot it's a lot lot. and um, if anyone out there you need resources, we have them on our website. And hopefully faculty administrators. um, Those who have more questions, you know where to reach us at Um, if you want more ideas, please listen to those who are informed by trauma. That is my advice. And Um, anybody
3: who needs to talk to us, we are here for you. Yes. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And we, and we will do, we will try to be the advocates we advocate the,
0: right. And also try to find the appropriate resources for you since, you know, I also don't, I am there for you, all of you, but I can only take on so much to not be re-traumatized. Right. Well, I, so I want to acknowledge that. Yes, yes. We will point you towards Sage and towards um I know many LGBTQ survivor resources, which are very specific. Um thank you, team. So it's difficult, but Halana, we thank you for just really being a truth teller and getting your voice out there. Um, I feel part of a community, so I thank you for that. Okay, we're going to put a bookmark in this. Please continue the conversation with us at our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. You'll find our blog as well as links to our Twitter, Facebook, email, and a brand new donate button so you can support what we do here. Thanks for listening. And now here's our theme song, Loverman, written by Jimmy Davis, Roger Ramirez, and James Sherman in a new rendition co-created by Anne-Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames. Mm